Sorry, I fucked that up. That was <laughs> great. That was great. That was great. I, I played you. on F natural. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, wait. Are we all recording? I mean, this is just... It was the red flag in a minor key. I could do it in a minor key. What? Well, it's quite Irish, that. Is there anything quite as labory as, like, doing, like, one-tenth of the red flag and it's fuck, I fucked it up! Hello and welcome to the second of this week's two social review podcasts. I'm your host, Jasper at JasperCH on Twitter, uh, where we're still talking about tech and our relationship with technology. Uh, Today we've got a segment discussing mental health uh, with Joe, Julia and Beth. Uh, And then afterwards, you'll be able to listen to myself, Lines and Henry talk about the 24 hour news cycle, Twitter uh, and how our relationship with uh twitter uh is and whether that can be for good or bad and positive and negative effects on us and all that kind of thing just so you're aware if you're going to be affected by it in the discussion of mental health there is discussion around anxiety and also suicide so just as a forewarning uh for some of you welcome to the social review podcast this week we're doing a special on the internet tech and how that intersects with politics and culture and Alan lives and um, this conversation uh, we, is going to be about uh, mental health and social media I am joined by hi I'm Julia I'm an occasional uh, collaborator in the social review hi I'm Beth I'm the social review's most prolific writer quality over quantity and I am Joe or at steamed hams on Twitter okay so social media is obviously a huge part of our lives like most of the um, social review team are on twitter i was wondering how um we sort of balanced using platforms which can obviously have a sort of adverse effect on our mental health with sort of the those opportunities that they've created because obviously like this website sort of wouldn't exist without twitter i sort of wouldn't know either of you without twitter but at the same time you've got that other side of social media so um julia do you want to come in on sort of that balance Right. So, uh, the thing for me is that I was on Twitter and I wasn't like a huge cloud follower or anything, but like I did have like almost 3000 followers. And, um, to me, the thing that I've, uh, noticed is that like, it does reach a point. I, I think Sarah Monavis said that like, uh, Twitter was made for optimum use between 500 and 800 uh, followers because uh, more than that, you start getting paranoid. You start like freaking out and thinking that someone's reading your tweets all the time to criticize you and to like send like aggressive stuff about you. But like, I think like Twitter is very, very good, like for careers and like my career, like really launched launched sounds like I'm like some kind of like important person but like I wouldn't be able to publish if it wasn't for Twitter having Twitter made me like able to have a career but like it reached a point in like over like a thousand followers and stuff where you just like whatever advantage you might get from uh, Twitter in terms of careers at least for me someone who is mentally ill someone who like struggles with anxiety and depression 
since uh, they were 16, Twitter was just like really poisonous, and I I would like I would literally like dream about like uh, certain Twitter users like reading my tweets and like attacking me, and I would wake up like in, in anxiety frenzy, cause like it, cause like the human mind wasn't made to like conceptualize this. You know what I mean? The thing about Twitter in terms of like mental health is that what uh whatever benefits you get the human mind wasn't made to handle the idea that a thousand people are like looking at the stuff you're reading and possibly attacking you and the human mind with uh propensity for mental health is even more ill uh mental illness is even more ill-equipped to deal with that reality so it's basically like you're in a jungle and the the whole time instead of like one lion it's like a thousand lions surrounding you and instead of like eating you just like mocking your takes and it's just like very stressful thinking about something that you just said um how much do you think sort of and, and beth feel free to come on this as well how much do you think sort of social media creates uh, mental health problems and how much do you think it just exploits or exasperates existing mental health problems like is it is there something about that the platform which um, which is actually the the root cause, or or is it just the nature of it that that it is going to um, yeah exasperate existing problems and exploit existing problems? I mean, I, I you know I'm so special and unique. I have anxiety unlike anybody else. There, yeah, we're going to talk about this. There was a thread about me by a particular Twitter user. And I happened to come across this thread, and just after I read it, it was, like, quite a big kind of anxiety hit for me. Because, I mean, I didn't, I don't really think about who I am in people's lives. My voice is breaking all over the shop here. I don't really think about who I am to people on Twitter, but, like, one tweet in this thread, a lot of it was generic transphobia, but one tweet in the thread specifically mentioned me, and there were, like, something like 30 people who liked that tweet. And I don't know who these people are, and I don't know how they know who I am. I get quite stressed out over replies as well. Like, when I say an opinion and somebody disagrees with the opinion, it's quite stressful. Not in the sense of, like, I'm always right, but, like, I always think, do I have to reply to this person, even if I don't know them? Like, do I have to defend myself? I'm ve I try to be very open about this. I've been struggling with uh, mental illness since I was basically a teen, and to the point that, like, um, I basically never, like, conceptualized a life with, without mental illness, and also, like, to the point that, like, I had to, like, learn that some, some of my thought patterns were mentally ill. So, like, you know, the thing about, like, not wanting to leave the house, not wanting to take a shower, not wanting to, like, just wanting to eat compulsively, to, like, every time I felt something bad, like, I had to, like, be told that those were not normal things that everybody had, but, like, symptoms of a disease. So I try to be very open about this. Uh, one of the ways I coped with uh, my mental illness, just as I did with food, because I use food as a bad coping mechanism, was through the internet. I, Whenever I felt lonely or, or felt like nobody could get it, or when I talked to my friends, you know, I think about dying all the time at school. They were like, that's weird. You're, are you like a baby or like a child? Like people like 
thought that was like a very childish thing for a 16 year old to be thinking about death all the time and be thinking about like how we're all gonna die etc but like when i went online and found a lot of people who uh shared those anxieties and a lot of people put that as like oh that's good people with mental illness they find find other people they can talk to and relate to them about their problems but actually for me it was quite bad because what happened is that like i started thinking that this was the equivalent of getting treatment so like instead of like talking to a psychologist about my bad habits and about how like i was struggling with school with maths and i just i just couldn't do it i started crying and i told people online about it and they went like oh yeah i get it you're like totally like valid for that shit it would have been better if i had gone to a psychiatrist and they'd gone like you know what uh you're having issues communicating you're having issues like uh, expressing that you you might need medication. So this is what I'm saying about tech. I don't think tech, I think whatever is wrong with me, uh, you know, my dad has had bouts of depression. My uh, grandma was in uh, antidepressives for like a very long time. Uh, my aunt has bipolar illness. So like, it's probably like a, a genetic thing. I do think that what the internet does to very young, impressionable people is that it creates the impression that you are getting support by giving you a community of people who are struggling with mental illness, but does not give you actual treatment. And like, just so it's clear, I am I'm middle class, I'm upper middle class, I'm very, very privileged, uh, you know, and I try to like own up to this, like, the reason why I didn't kill myself in 2015 was because my parents had money and they sent me to a psychiatrist. Putting that aside, I do worry about the people who like don't have the resources or may like not even know that what they're experiencing is depression. They think it's just like a certain personality that they have. Uh, they go into uh, the internet at a very young age and instead of finding help, what they find is like validation for very, very grim aspects of their, 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 their illness. You know, and I try to like fight that. And I think that the thing with uh, Twitter is kind of similar, but like politicized, you know, instead of like getting help because you're like, you're a cantankerous person who is unpleasant and get block gets blocked all the time. Instead of like someone coming up to them and being like, hey, maybe what are you doing is poisoning your brain and you're doing this to like seem better, but like what you're actually doing is just drowning yourself into this toxic thing of masculinity and uh, aggressivity instead of like having like an actual policy and personality. Or what you're actually doing is just like ascribing political tags to your to your mental health issues. Like and, and like I'm honestly not saying this in a judgmental way. I mean like I have mental health issues. But like I feel like what Twitter does is just give like a, a tribal like political identity to give cover to those issues of like how to relate to people, you know? Following on from what um, Julia was talking about, when we talk about social media, we're probably talking about mainly about Twitter because we're, um, we know each other from Twitter and it's the one we use most. But I was unfortunate enough to be on Tumblr a lot when I was younger. And Tumblr is already not a healthy environment for mental ill, mental ill, mental health and mental illness. Um, like the age range of it is the kind of core age range is like 13 to 27. So it's a 
not a good environment for, you know, like, young people even just going off that. But Tumblr had a tendency, I'm saying had because it got destroyed because there's no porn anymore, um, had a tendency to encourage, as Julia was saying, very unhealthy mental illness traits, and a lot of people on there were, like, shitting on therapy, um, sorry for swearing, were, like, criticising therapy and therapists and saying, like, no, no therapists know about you and they don't understand what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And it's very, like, oh, you know, it's okay to lie in bed for five days and not eat and not shower and all these kind of things. Especially if you're young, if you're, like, a 15-year-old or whatever using the website and you've got these older people who... and you think they know what they're talking about and... Obviously, young people don't get on with their parents. They don't listen to what their parents say, but they're like, oh, these people on the internet, they know what's going on. I'm going to listen to them and, you know, not take medication and not go to therapy and all these kinds of things. I've been reading Richard Seymour's book, um, The Twittering Machine, recently for my um, master's. And I think what you said about sort of using social media or, or the internet as sort of self-medication is really interesting. So in that book, he talks about a study where they tried to see if a group of people who had signed up uh, could quit Facebook for 99 days. And they found that the ones that couldn't do it, the ones that um, quickly returned to Facebook, were those that sort of weren't in... A happy frame of mind already so the ones that stayed away were the ones who were already in a happier frame of mind and so it, it sort of suggests that that sort of social media addiction is sort of self-medication and 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 um a way of sort of curating that sort of better that idealized version of yourself and getting approval for it and that's sort of built in to the way that these sites are designed right like um that they intentionally have those sort of dopamine feedback loops where um you are constantly chasing that like extra bit of approval but then at the same time if the sort of default mode of something like twitter is sort of quite antagonistic you know um a a disagreement is always going to get more likes than anything else you know like it encourages a sort of outrage and antagonistic sort of attitude uh, and and sometimes like that that's righteous but often it isn't and if those platforms are designed for you to be addicted and you're being addicted to an environment that is so negative then then obviously that self-medication isn't going to be the most effective way of um of, of dealing with those existing mental health problems like that's that's not effective self-medication so you can sort of see how the social media platforms themselves, their whole business model sort of exploits those sort of vulnerabilities and um, and that's scary. So I've been very down on social media for lots of reasons, lots of good reasons. What about positive things? Is it possible for sort of tech and social media and the internet to contribute effectively to sort of um, mental health and well-being? I know for myself, I have received lots of support from like friends in terms when I've sort of expressed my own sort of mental health struggles or whatever on online that's sort of like so much of the support I received was from like 
online friends. So, so that's a positive aspect. But I just wondered if you had thoughts on that. Well, the obvious advantage is without social media, I wouldn't be here. And there wouldn't be a social review. Is, that a, is, is having a social review an advantage? Jury's so out on that. Um, that was my joke. You're going to be my <laughs> joke. <laughs> Who said joke? <laughs> no. But like, no. Um, I think what you did, Joe, was... Uh, if I We can cut this if you think it's too personal. But uh, I think what you did, Joe, was like you searched treatment and then you talked to your friends online about getting treatment. I feel like those are like vastly different... Uh, experiences from what Beth and I experienced because I think what you did was uh opening up talking to people saying hey I you know to put like in, in like I have this like I have diabetes and, and then they go search treatment for diabetes and then they tell their friends about it and their friends talk about like well my aunt had it and like it's fine you can take this medication and you deal with it this with this and this way and the opposite is like being diagnosed with diabetes and being and just going on online talking about it and just like keep eating things that you know will eventually cause your death you know like and and i know this thing's over the top but like it was very much not over the top when i was in the depressive like episode it was very much like every day waking up and going like are you gonna kill yourself today are you gonna kill yourself today are you gonna kill yourself today because like that's how like the depressive mind is in the end, was not like social media that helped me. It was my parents had enough money to put me in a psychiatrist to take medication so I could get better and, and stop thinking about killing myself every day. It's the, th- it's the thing people talk about on social media a lot, but I think an underrated way of helping, not just your mental health, but like your personality. Oh God, don't say personality again. You're like who you are as a person and your personal development is going outside. And I don't just mean, like, going, getting sun, but, you know, sun is good. But I mean, like, talking to people outside of social media, because social media, especially one thing that I think old school Tumblr and uni had in common was the tendency to restrict people's kind of mental aging because when you're at uni you start off at 18 like you've just got out of school you're young you're dumb you've no idea what you're doing and then you get to 22 or 21 when you leave and you're still young and dumb you don't know what you're doing yeah when you get to 22 you're still hanging out with people who are like roughly the same age as you You don't hang out with people in their late 20s or 30s or 40s um whereas when i started my postgrad and moved to brighton and you know stopped using tumblr I was hanging out with people who are older than me, people who do not use the internet a lot, people who've never heard of, insert Twitter meme here. Um, and that was like huge for my personal development. I feel like the first year I was in Brighton, I aged about five years. And a lot of that was just me catching up with all the like unhealthy and... Not to sound too judgmental, but childish and immature stuff that I'd learned from uni and from Tumblr. I'm not super down on uh, social... I know I sounded very down, and I certainly, like, you know, I deleted my main Twitter. I, like, you know, don't have a Tumblr. I don't even have Facebook, because I got a bunch of death threats from Bolsonaro stands. Uh, So, like, now I don't even have that. But, like... I do get that some people like they they have problems reaching out to others. It's hard, and it, like I I 
feel like I'm, I might have sounded too judgmental or sounded like one of those people telling you to do yoga for your mental health. And uh, I honestly, that's not what I mean. Yeah, so I'm can like, I add, not, I don't mean that either. I know that it's hard. I like, if you're listening to this and you're like struggling and you, you think I'm saying, you know, fuck you for having mental health problems. I'm not saying this at all. Uh, I'm not judging you if you're having a hard time communicating, if you have a hard time finding friends, if social media is like the only way in which you think you can find someone who can help you. I'm saying that if your friends aren't helping you uh, make that leap from social media to real life, then they're not really your friends. Because, and that's, and like, I'm not saying that they're doing this because they're bad people. I'm saying that like, they like you are caught in a vicious circle, which like Joe said, is promoted by like actual fucking companies to keep you addicted to this. It's like as bad as cigarettes, you know? So like, what I'm saying is not like, if you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, if you're very, very shy and social media is the only way you can let it out, cool, dude, like, I, I don't judge this at all, but social media should be there as, like, something that helps you make the leap to having friends in real life and going outside. And uh, this sounds so stupid, but especially if you live in fucking Britain where it's dark all the time, go outside in the sun, whatever you have a sh chance to, because, like, your mood improves, your, your health improves, you feel better. Like, take walks. Like, try to, like, slot in that time. I know it's really hard, but, like, start with 10 minutes and then go to 15. I, like, I, I, like, I don't want to sound like a preachy person. I'm saying this, like, as someone who, like, you know, I know that sooner or later I'm going to have to struggle with another depressive episode, you know, and another anxiety episode. I have anxiety every day of my fucking life. But, like, what I'm trying to say is that there are ways to manage which are good for you. This is all I want to say. Don't cancel me. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this little segment of the podcasts where we're going to be talking about uh, the 24-hour news cycle and when or whether it is possible to log off from it. Uh, I'm joined by Lines and Henry. Hello, guys. Hey. Hello. Those are really awkward hellos. I want you both to know that. Uh, Hi. <laughs> yes, correct. There we go. Much better. I literally just waved at my screen like I'm a Blue oh Peter presenter. Goodness me. I did not do that. So, the news cycle. 24-hour news. All of us are online, as has been evidenced throughout um, this episode of the podcast. Um, I am too online. Uh, I, obviously, my name is Lines, but also I am too much online. Um... Uh, we, we just before we started recording for for the benefit of the tape, um, I absentmindedly, while talking about how much time we spend on Twitter, absentmindedly without thinking about it, opened a Twitter tab. <laughs> like that wasn't a conscious thought that my brain did. I just suddenly had Twitter open. There is so much to unpack here. I just I just, I just feel I feel like that sets the tone for what this segment is going to be about. Exactly, exactly. So. Speaking of Twitter, speaking of being plugged into the news cycle, the example I'm going to bring up um, is the Tom Watson coup or failed coup. So last Friday, to kick off Labour conference in a really fun way for everyone, uh, John Landsman and a bunch of other people were like, we're going to abolish the position of deputy leader in the Labour Party because we don't like Tom Watson and we want to get rid of him. It broke late Friday night. Twitter went absolutely mental. Social review group chat was firing off. We were like, oh my God, what's happening? This is the worst possible start to conference. Uh, and then all very quickly by Saturday morning, the coup had failed. Corbyn had stepped in. Deputy leader position wasn't being abolished. Now, 
at the start of this crisis, Tom Watson was the deputy leader of the Labour Party. By the end of the crisis, Tom Watson was still deputy leader of the Labour Party with no real impact to his reputation in a negative way, only really a positive way, I would say. I guess it kind of strengthened him. Um, throughout that whole ordeal and in the morning when uh, the coup was failed, it resolved, um, I was thinking, is there any tangible benefit to me following along with this? Because it's all going to be resolved in the morning and I can read about it in the morning. And in the end, it was. Um, and I think, like, should I have just got an earlier night and the outcome would have been the same? Um, and I feel that's emblematic of a lot of basically the entire 24-hour news cycle. Um, so, Lyons, I wanted to open up to you first. Um, are there any tangible benefits of being plugged into the 24-hour news cycle over just following up the news later on? Well, I think it depends on what, what you think the purpose of engaging with news is. Um, like, there's an experiential... There's a, clearly, in terms of being informed, it absolutely didn't help. I think there are times when I am more informed by Twitter, you know, that you have a thing, a phenomenon that maybe other heavy Twitter users get where someone posts something on Facebook and that was like something you saw on Twitter like two, three days ago. It's basically dead now. But, you, you, you know, they think of it as being something that's just happened because they're plugged into a slower pace. It's quite nice to feel a bit more informed in that regard. I'm not sure it's a massive advantage. But I think there's an experiential bit to it. Like, it's kind of fun. I'm not sure it should be fun. I'm not sure I'm sure that fun is always good. But like, do you remember that night? Maybe you, I don't, I don't know if you were, you were online, but do you remember when you, when the, the night that uh, the spurious or otherwise allegations about David Cameron yes. and something he the came out? And that was the pig, right. And that was, uh, that was a night on Twitter only beat in its pure, feeble excitement than, than, in fact, the recent pig incident. Oh, the um, feral hogs. <laughs> Right, I don't know what it is about pigs, but Twitter goes wild for them. If, I had, if you haven't been online for that, you don't actually lose anything. But it was quite an interesting experience to be there for it and just sort of see everyone go a bit wild. And I think almost similarly with the Tom Watson thing, there's something about seeing something unfold, seeing the reaction mm. unfold live in real time that's interesting. I mean, why is it necessary to kind of be logged in at all? Uh, like, if you reject the idea that you have to be logged in like had you been logged in all night and he had lost his job why would that have been of any more value you could make exactly the same argument that at the end of the day he either would be or he wouldn't so i don't think it's about what happened or what didn't happen uh, mm. necessarily if that makes sense um because i think either way it can't be that what we're getting for it is to find out just to find out what happened because clearly, if that's all we cared about, we'd go online for five minutes every morning, see what the news had been, go, hmm, yes, very good, and then log off. We do not do this. So clearly the thing that we get from engagement with news is not simply uh, information, because although we wouldn't behave in the way that we behave, I think. But I, I do think it matters in some regards, because it's kind of like a story unfolding, right? Um, so, like, if you are watching a movie... Um, and the end of the movie, the characters and the story is in the exact same state at the beginning, you're going to be kind of feeling like, oh, what was the point of that? So whereas, like, if you're, you know, staying up following the Tom Watson news and it ends how it began, I, he remains leader. Well, I, I disagree. I think a really interesting... Well, because that is a story, right? There's a, there's a whole genres of story about characters who ultimately engage in 
futile activity which gets them nowhere and traps them in there. Like, if you, if the experience of being in the Labour Party in 2019 is being in Waiting for Godot, then that's something to experience. And frankly, sometimes I think it is. Like, <laughs> when, we, when we feel like we're in the Labour Party and we're trapped inside some sort of endless cycle with the same things coming around literally every week as if we're on this terrible schedule, I'm not saying that's a good experience, and it's clearly a different experience from a straightforward um uh, it's clearly a different experience from a straightforward nice narrative henry i wonder if you have any thoughts on this too uh all too many probably i think that the <laughs> risk of this whole thing is the risk of like treating politics as uh, an entertainment as a kind of somewhere between a reality show and a blood sport and while i'm not sure. saying there's anything wrong with that as such like it's not a it's not i do it all the time myself it's pretty fun as an occupation there's no there's no denying that there's a lot of it which is like that the risk is creating an incentive structure which in particular means the media has to cover it that way and i think that that's a problem with social media which we perhaps don't think about enough is that the well actually that's a bit of a weird thing to say that's a problem with social media which i would identify um is that it accelerates already and kind of pushes to breaking point the already existing tendency for the news media in this country to just like relentlessly uh, amp up the theater and amp up the drama of it and it's like if you're following it 24 hour all night long then you kind of have to strip away the content because there's just not enough content and not not enough substance not enough policy to fill up that it has to be to an extent this kind of annoying uh relentless personality drama uh, and that's what gets you know that's what gets uh sky news through the early hours or whatever and that's what encourages people like you know the i don't really love dissing the bbc but it's impossible to avoid this week that's what leads you with uh bbc releasing a headline like they did yesterday on their news site which was three brexit champions stand up at, for their ideas at party conference and then the whole piece was this lengthy like hashing out of um of Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Barclay speaking at Conservative Conference and an analysis of the optics of it all. The whole thing was about, oh, this might not play well with some Conservative members or this really got the base roaring. And it's like, well, you're saying that immediately after you're discussing Steve Barclay saying we should abolish the backstop without even offering a hint of a pushback on the fact that that's impossible. The only mention in the whole piece about No Deal's impact on real people was a quote from Michael Gove's speech. And yet this is a whole speech, this is a whole piece rather, which is theoretically about Brexit and like the Tory approach to Brexit. And I just think that that's absolutely outrageous, to be honest with you. I think that it's shameful that our national broadcaster, the place that people go for their news in this country, really, a, a universal source, is pu kind of pushing out this kind of tripe. We do truly hate to see it. But yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. Um, do we, I, and I'm going to open this up to both of you, is there any utility in 24-hour news cycles? Should broadcasters be like, you know what, it's had a good run, but we're just going to be broadcasting from 8am till 8pm, unless something happens that changes that? It would save them money. I mean, yeah, but I, so I, I, I think it would be good. I, I think, although I've have some sort of positive things to say about something to get from before. I think in general, 24-hour news cycle is kind of bad. I'm not sure we can go back now. I'm not sure we can stop with the bottle. It's a bit like all the horses are gone from our stable. They're just gone. They're in the wilderness. And now we're bolting the doors and saying it's fine. We, we can't. 
the horses are gone, as it were. Because what's happened as well is that technology has ratcheted up. And as um, anyone was saying, Twitter sort of enables and accelerates all of this. Well, Twitter won't stop it. I mean, if, if Twitter does finally die because it doesn't make any money in it, as far as I know, it doesn't make any money, um, then that might kill it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like uh, just as um, Facebook deciding it didn't want to do news anymore after 2016, change uh, has probably killed news media again. I think um, it's very possible that shifts in some of these online services will then cause shifts in things but i don't think that you know it's not like the if the bbc unilaterally said we're only going to broadcast news in x and y the bbc do do that right like the bbc for most people's point of view broadcasts at the six o'clock and the ten o'clock news right only weirdos watch bbc news 24 i'd only like you know proper weirdos watch bbc parliament maybe a few next week but do you know what i mean i mean i watch it but like I'm politically engaged, so really, and like Sky News, sort of similarly, right? Like, actually, most people I don't think are watching these new channels all the time, mm. but 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 people, most people, I think, probably like to dip in and out in a flexible sort of way and find out what's currently happening, and that's I think probably how people might be engaging with it. You know, actually, like if you watch news for any length of time, the TV news, it does repeat. Because actually there's so many segments. Because yeah. actually what it's designed for, really, is anyone can sort of just sit down and watch the news and keep watching it until they see a segment again that they've already seen and they're going to be fine and they stop watching for a bit. But people but people don't have to tune into the news at a certain time. But I think that's clearly good, right? Because in the in the more flexible world that we live in now, or people want to engage in content in a different way, I think that will inevitably happen. That's fine. There's something else to be said, though, about, like, think about websites like Guido Forks or whatever, right? Or, or the blogs... Um, a, a mode of publishing which basically major media sites have moved into now, right? That kind of constant hither thing, hither thing, hither thing. Um, I think those are probably less positive. But again, if any one of them stops it, then they lose ad revenue. Or I guess in the BBC they lose. I don't really know what motivates the BBC. It's very unclear at times. <laughs> but for most companies, right, they, they they lose ad revenue or they, they there's a they're kind of stuck. It's a you know the phrase the Red Queen's race. No, but I'll I'll run with you. Uh, but quite so. In in it's a phrase from I think biology, but it's from Alice in uh, Alice, Alice through the no Alice through the looking oh, glass. Through the looking glass, right, right. Where there's a bit where she's running, she's with the Red Queen, and they're running and running and running through the chessboard sort of fields of of um, through the looking glass, and the more and more they run, they find they're not moving. And the Red Queen's basically like, you have to run and run and run just to stand still. And there's this concept in biology that basically you get animals in evolution kind of change behavior but that just forces and they get an advantage but that means that other animals just evolve to be competing with them too so you end up with this kind of ratchet up where species end up hyper specialized in one direction but none of them none of them are outperforming each other it's just that they have ended up at each stage making an iterative improvement which they, everyone else has had to follow and now they can't go back to the perhaps more sensible kind of form that they were in before because they hyper specialize in this way that means now for this niche if they if they try to move backwards someone will be doing better than them the thing that trapped them there so, so i think you know it's not like news media decide uh, this is how we'll do uh, and it's off their own bat. I think sometimes it is, but a lot of the time it's following a herd or following a strategy that appears to be working for others. And so it's you can't just stop. 
I mean, you can choose not to. Like, the Social Review doesn't publish like that, but the Social Review is it's not a current affair thing. Except the podcast, in some ways. Well, quite. Yeah, that's true. But um, but also, Social Review does not get the same numbers, perhaps, that the BBC News web, web front page does? No, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> <laughs> you think we do get... The Social Review does get the same numbers as... If anything, more. Right, okay. <laughs> so, Lines, you said something earlier about following the herd and repeating what others are doing well surely it it would be possible for let's say sky news to be like you know what we are going to only be publishing from these hours um our journalists are going to have time off otherwise and then maybe people would be like oh yeah actually this is pretty cool this is a nice way to transgress against how 24-hour news and digital media and twitter etc etc is being done so so your 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 assumption there is that some a a a uh, Rupert Murdoch news outlet. Is, is Sky News still Rupert Murdoch? I'm not really sure. But... Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be Sky News. But anyway, but a, a news outlet, because I don't think any of them treat their journalists and say that well. Go, ah, oh, yes, for the good of our journalists, uh, we would take an action that will decrease our revenue. I, I mean, I don't think they will, um, because like I think it's the right thing to do, but they're not incentivized to do it under the horrible confines of the system in which we live. So I'm not sure that they will. I think there's a thing to be said. I mean, it would be really cool, I think, to sort of shape some stuff around, like, kind of the ethics of news. I mean, I'm not a journalist, so I'd like to hear some actual journalist opinions on this. But some stuff around the kind of the ethics of news reporting and kind of the ethics of the 24-hour news cycle as it relates to journalists as well. I think it would be possible for the incentive structure to change. So, I, I mean, like, would, right yeah. now, right now, definitely not switching away from 24-hour news because even ordinary people are plugging in. You know, I remember one night I came home from working in the library. Yeah. My mum was watching BBC Parliament and I was like, what are you doing? Right. She was like, oh, it's really interesting. And I came up here, I think, to record the podcast and I came mm. back down like two hours later and she was still watching BBC Parliament. So it, it, it is crazy. Um, but like after, let's say after this is all done, mm. um, after Brexit and Trump and the other... There's um, no after... Be after after once it dies down a bit, which oh. will happen eventually. Well, even if it's many years, I do maintain. No, but I, I think I think your assumption is yeah, right because your assumption is it will return to normality. I am perhaps more pessimistic. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think it will return no. to normality. But I think there will be a dip off in the pace and intensity of stories, and then maybe then that will be a time for reflection, and maybe then it will become less profitable to be broadcasting all the time and more profitable to focus it a bit more this sort of theory though the interesting thing is that actually in some ways that the um the people being engaged with it is almost the best case scenario for how this is developed like i actually think that the very i think that the thing which encourages the very worst of our political media and our political culture in general is the idea of this uh essentially a dead some dedicated channels which are exclusively followed by like politics obsessives and i think that that's like that's actually really dangerous to public engagement that's i think really dangerous to having a genuine mass democracy if you instead have the principle that like there's a growing divide between the apathetic majority and a few hyper engaged 
middle-aged weirdos who like are constantly involved in the jargonistic and weirdly sport-like goings-on and the ups and downs of a news cycle which is actually surprisingly irrelevant to anything because if normal people aren't following it then what the hell's the point of a news cycle like how do you win or lose a news cycle if no one's paying attention to it and so in many ways i think that there's actually i mean i don't want to sound like jess phillips but there's some Ben, or not benefit, there's not benefit to it, but there's some ironic optimism in the current engagement with news in that way. The current engagement with political media, which isn't like uh, superficial uh, or purely at election times. I think there's some grounds for, uh, gra- there's some grounds for being on the bright side of that. And especially because it seems to not be that I don't know. And then as soon as I think about how social media impacts that, I become immediately grim and gloomy again. So the Jess Phillips quote you're referring to is an interview in The Guardian where she was like, the good thing about fascism is that everyone's politically engaged now and everyone has Which opinions. is a bad take. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have tons of time Jess Phillips, or I think she really gets a lot of stick, but like, like, like those words are awful on the face of it. I don't know if that's what she actually said or it's just kind of a squashing together. So she did say the good thing about fascism. I think I think she was like being sort of sarcastic. But the point the point which Henry then echoed of these kind of times increase political participation and enhance ordinary people's membership. I yeah, I mean, I think I think it, I think it's good when people are mass engaged in politics. I think there's some arguments that people being mass engaged in echo chambers actually is part of the issue that we currently have. Um, and there's, a, there's an argument that you can make that the hyper sportized political wonk sphere, which is broadly what we exist yeah. in, right? We are all recording a podcast about politics <laughs> so recently i have been subscribing to more newsletters so you know i i've been subscribed to stephen bush's morning call for a while oh, aren't we all because to get because i because i got my soft left starter pack or whatever but <laughs> but, uh, but there's a few other and i i'm subscribed to kind of newsletters and mailing lists for uh various stuff to do my university or like uh, community stuff locally but my point is i actually quite like the feeling of getting an email, reading it, maybe some links to more stuff if I want it, but it's not always there. It's sort of finite. I used to be subscribed, I used to have an Economist subscription, I think I got it free with something. I don't particularly like the Economist for the obvious reasons, but you know, it's it, it's nice to sort of find out what like centre-right liberal people are thinking, I guess. Um, but they had a they had a similar sort of morning briefing thing, and it's just generally quite good to be like, oh, now I have learned some stuff. I have I have engaged some stuff for the day, I am a bit more informed, but that was kind of finite. Someone has curated it, and it's that curation that's quite... Like, Twitter isn't curated, right? Like, there's an algorithm that delivers the hottest takes to your eyes to argue with right now, but that's not curation. In many ways, it's the opposite. Whereas a newsletter... And you can choose to unsubscribe for a newsletter if the the curation is bad. Um, But I enjoy it because it's kind... And I've just subscribed to the label list one on someone's recommendation. Um, It's kind of finite it's curated and you just get some news you get more informed but there's not that driving doom 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 sense of the 24-hour news cycle but i think you are a little more engaged than you would be if you just engage with the six o'clock news or whatever you have some context for the stuff that's going on often especially if the first thing in the morning forever you sort of you're like okay i know what's going to set the political agenda for the rest of the day i think you then have the ability to maybe dip in and out of the news cycle during the day with, with the cliff notes already of kind of what's been shaping it without really missing much. And I've certainly found it, it's not completely work, worked yet, but I'm using it as a way to sort of shape 
how I engage with the news, and it's it has some like I feel a little better for it. I do think that the um the, the interesting point about social media is that so obviously social media I think is a uh, revolutionary and incredibly disruptive and turbulent force in our politics, and I think that it has a a big role to play in uh promoting instability and often in uh, fueling hate and inflaming opinions. I do think the other thing, though, is that it's actually it's possible, it's difficult, but possible to curate it in a way which is reasonably, uh, reasonably conducive to sanity and engagement. It's like there are a lot of ways in which I'm sad I was too young for the uh, for the blogosphere, for like actual early 2000s blogging where it felt like there were a lot more reasoned and considered and thoughtful opinions which were at a much slower pace but i think that if you do it right as a way to make twitter in particular a kind of resurgence of that if you like turn off the algorithmic uh timeline and like in my experience if you lock your account and if you follow like a fact the very most 1.5k people who are all like thoughtful and smart then like it is actually possible to find some interesting things about stuff which is generally neglected by the uh by the media as a whole as a whole so that's that's something which is again weirdly optimistic i think i would agree with that yeah no i think i'd actually agree uh, i try to be relatively curational actually in terms of who i follow on twitter I think there's no shame in unfollowing someone. Doesn't mean I don't like them. It just means that maybe they only retweet a certain kind of, yeah, you know, a certain kind of activist content. In, in most sphere, let's see, where else has just been simply the same message in in in, in, a, in day in day out with nothing interesting. If someone retweets that all the time, I don't just unfollow them. Um, well, I don't like them just because I don't. As you say, it's it's about shaping your feed. I think that's I think it's quite a good way to engage in it. I think it's not perfect. I think I think you're right about like um, locking one's account is quite good so going back you know you're saying we should go back to the blogosphere i'm saying i was saying before a liked email and whatever I mean, it does occasionally feel that what we what we sort of find now i'm not trying to be kind of like oh well back in my day because i'm not tech is a lot better now but it's quite interesting how we often find that the technology that we had before that we've replaced actually still works perfectly well i quite like blogs i mean the blogosphere was bad in many ways in some ways I, I, you know, I often say to my friends, I really miss Live Journal, and the communities and the sort of the things that were built there, and nothing that has replaced Live Journal since, since which was really kind of Tumblr and then sometimes Twitter and Facebook to degree now, though they're, they're much less good. Um, nothing has really replaced that. It, it sort of feels like we did have a lot of tools to make these things good, but then also the internet was smaller then. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the newsletters or blogs in that capacity. Both both of you kind of mentioned about the blogs providing a space for like more considered takes, uh, a sense, uh, more of a sense of like um, stability uh, and permanence to to those kind of things, rather than the kind of a rabid, discordant, disjointed nature of social media, where there's so much information flying about all at once, and then it's all going to become dated within just a couple of minutes, um, let alone a couple of hours. Um, there was a tweet the other day um, I saw, which uh, said like, oh, history departments in a hundred years, uh, history student one will turn to history student two and say, like, oh, what's your specialism? And I'll say, the long 3 to 5 p.m. PST on September 27th, 2019, you. Uh, and I, I feel that kind of that kind of sums it up. Um, building off of that, um, I wanted to talk a little about, about uh, 
that sense of permanence versus fluidity of social media uh, and books because something which i'm weighing up a lot at the moment is that i and i'm sure i speak for both of you um as well here um and everyone else on the social review to be honest uh i'm very plugged in to the 24-hour news cycle i'm very plugged into twitter um the stats on my phone let me get it up uh so i installed a um a, a phone usage tracker to see how much i was using my phone uh and over the past seven days twitter was my most used app um i've used it 10 and a half hours um and opened it a total of 397 times uh, over the past seven days, uh, which to me is quite a lot. And I don't feel that I've got 10 and a half hours worth of content out of that. But I feel like I would have been able to draw a lot more if I'd spent at least half of that time um, reading books instead. Uh, you know, my room, I'm looking around at them all now. I have about 70 odd unread books and various ones I'm I'm currently reading and, and they're in various states of read. Um, and I do think that books have more of an object permanence about them and there's a sort of like stability to the text and the ideas, which is why I really hate when I say books, which like talk about current affairs and which are going to be updated within a few weeks. I'm like, no, you defeated the point of the book. Um, I wonder if either of you agree or disagree with that sentiment and whether you think there is um, a value in being plugged into 24-hour news, which can't be matched by books or whether you think... Uh, books are preferable or all that kind of stuff henry what do you think this is going to be sound horrific and i kind of hate giving sincere advice on any platform <laughs> but um for this probably for this year or so i've uh trained myself basically to not look at my phone uh in the evenings and to always read for at least half an hour before i go to sleep and i cannot emphasize enough how much better that's made me sleep how much happier it's made me feel and how much generally how much more uh, engaged and productive i feel by just reading and i do think that ultimately like um books are not you know there's no i ideal way of engaging with any information there's no uh there's no medium which should be inherently privileged above any other but there is still this fundamental like reward and satisfaction to books which i, I mean i finished a book immediately before recording this and i'm going to finish another one tonight because i'm what like, are the books plowing through them so i finished matthias Ennard's compass just now which is a really weird kind of dense meditation on the nature of love and death in the middle east and this evening i'm gonna finish because i've only got like 15 pages left svetlana alexievich's second hand time and actually that's a really interesting point to to bring in here because second hand time is uh and alexievich's work is all it's a collection it's reporting and it's a collection of uh of memories and so it's a collection of stories she's picked up an oral history she's uh gathered from her travels and her reporting and in this case so second hand time is a 700 page long book with what must be dozens of full-length stories and hundreds of different contributions including some really brief quotes about the fall of the soviet union and so she basically like it's this story of uh, a woman kind of uh, relentlessly and dedicatedly traveling the, the former Soviet Union and essentially trawling for the strangest and most interesting stories and often the, the very saddest stories and the the uh, most hopeless stories and the unheard stories, in other words. So these aren't the stories of the oligarchs or the dissidents or the heroic 
prisoners or uh, politicians or whatever. These are the stories of the, you know, the poor woman in a village whose husband died and left her with nothing, the victims of the gangsters, the the uh, kind of the uh, people behind the news almost. And there's an extent to which I think that's the great promise of social media, having that kind of effect and bringing people this kind of uh, Greek chorus, if I can be really pretentious about it. At least that's a good description of Alexievich's work. It's not a good description of any social media site. And I think that's the great betrayal of them to an extent that actually, far from being a chorus of memory and a uh, kind of uh, a marketplace of ideas or whatever co- cliche you want to use, a long way from being this kind of uh, uh, forum for discussion and debate. Social media actually, uh, in many ways, I think, been engineered to appeal to our worst instincts and been engineered to encourage a kind of gossiping, uh, attention-seeking kind of uh, spiral of ever-escalating hot takes. So there's this interesting idea from a Danish, uh, Danish sociologist called Thomas Pettit, uh, which he calls the Gutenberg parenthesis, where, and I've just got an article about it up now, and I'll, I'll just read out the bits which I feel I should say. Um, and it's controversial, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think it's a really interesting uh, idea, that essentially the era from the 15th century to the 20th century was a strange aberration where we worked in text and where we thought in that more permanent and more object-based way and this more categorized way because you had these kind of printed and bound volumes of books which had a kind of weird authority and a uh, a cultural power to them and essentially that we're now leaving that behind and because the internet is inherently more uh, oral and more uh, transitory and more ephemeral we have a uh, a newly uh, kind of strange and bizarre and hard to cope with flatness of discourse if that makes any kind of sense a kind of uh, rapid a flood of information in a very traditionally kind of oral and uh, almost gossip focused way if that makes any sense yeah it does i i'm not sure i agree i think there's still a danger that you know like obviously that that was only a thing that maybe happened in Europe and I don't know so much about what happened elsewhere where there were different technologies or things happening at different times you know there's been uh the, the history of like the written word in I don't know the Islamic world for instance began a lot earlier um obviously the printing press did do a thing um and there's something also about the fact that like I bet it didn't feel like orality gossip and the ephemera weren't there at the time for those people living it's just that we didn't write them down so from our perspective now we can't see them we talked about secondhand time a bit before and i think that's quite interesting because i got two-thirds of the way through secondhand time years ago and then stopped uh it is really good um but um i really struggle with focus i, I think uh all living thoughts which is kind of about what i'm about to say there's something about not everyone can engage in books in the same way um i think there's a conversation that's perhaps too big for this podcast right here right now but i think i'm on i want to mention it about disabilities and who it is who can engage with text in what ways you know i have friends who are dyslexic for whom who read a lot actually whose relationship with the written word is different and who really enjoy the feeling of connectedness and social buzz that social media gives um 
and I I actually don't personally have a diagnosis for out, but I have a lot of kind of well, I've got <clears throat> subclinical stuff which I have very I struggle a lot with atten- my attention and so forth. And I often find using Twitter or using social media more general is kind of a way of you know like some people fidget play with toys and some people doodle. For me, social media is that it's a way to sort of yes, okay, it's an attention sink. Um, I think it's probably probably not great for me, but it's almost like um. It gives the fizzy part of my brain that always wants to be doing something, something to do, and I think it does feel a good place for that in a way that I mean I used to read tons of the child, and I really struggle with it more and more now. But then also over the weekend I read most of a 600-page textbook on cryptography, like almost cover to cover. Um, I think I didn't take it all in, you know, I need to go back and read it again. But like sometimes I can get hyper focused, sometimes I can't, and I'm not sure. You know, I, for years me, me mum has told me, you know, lines you should log off more. You know, don't 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 look at a screen before you go to bed. But to be quite honest, you know, I think I've always found it hard to log off. I remember being 14, being on MSN Messenger, which I was accessing through a web page on my Nintendo DS browser. This was before smart devices of any kind, but I still found out I found a way. Jesus I looked Christ. Till, oh yeah, <laughs> I was up till 4 a.m. Uh, yeah, I was the one person who owned the Nintendo DS browser, <laughs> uh, and I, I was up reading Harry Potter fan fiction, TV tropes, and talking to cute boys on um, MSN Messenger until like four in the morning, and then I go to school and be exhausted. And it's honestly a dysfunctional pattern, but a dysfunctional pattern I'm still in today. And I, like, it's easy to say we should change. I, I think it's really hard to know how. I do agree though that social media absolutely does kind of lead us into doing these behaviours which are ultimately not healthy but it's engineered that way and you do get that sense like I'm absolutely certain I think I've read some stuff like it's literally just basic Skinner box psychology stuff like the, the the thing where you pull down on the Twitter thing and it may or may not give you some more tweets but they might give you an, it, it, it's just pigeons pecking at a box it's very often that you can tell uh what the uh kind of damaging implications of something is from what the uh people who are running it do themselves and it's really interesting to note that when you think about social media executives very few of them are actually remotely active on social media and there was a news story about two three years back which is really stuck in my mind which was sean parker you know, Justin Timberlake from The Social Network, saying that he doesn't let his children use social media because it is, in his words, uh, designed to be addictive. It is, the purpose of it is to be psychologically manipulative. And if anyone knows, he should. You don't get high on your own supply. Exactly. Like they are selling us something which is harmful to us, which is both harmful to us and that we enjoy. And they know what, and I think it's fucked up, but I think it's also the world that we live in. And I don't have to stop or not live in it. Uh, is my conclusion, and I, and I think I think I think logging off is good. I think I think let's do the let's do the social review. Um, like, review logs off. <laughs> this, this is the maybe we should maybe this is like the very special episode thing where we turn to the camera and go, hey kids, maybe you should more healthily engage in social media by logging the fuck off. I just thought the social review logs off would be a fantastic title for like the last ever episode of the podcast. You wanted to? I'm imagining it as an awareness campaign, like a like a log off day, like a like a like a the day <laughs> for activism for overly engaged Twitter hacks near you. If you know an overly engaged Twitter hack, why not encourage them to log off for a day? We're doing a sponsored I'm log so off. This, but um, but... it's like it's like some people do dry January. I don't drink, but maybe I should do a like um a log Twitter free Tuesdays or something. Yeah, Twitter free Tuesdays. That's not a bad idea. Kind of, kind, of, well, kind of what Henry was just saying about how f- for half an hour every night before he goes to bed, he'll 
um read instead of go on his phone i also started doing this last week and i can confirm the benefits are great um, good. yeah yeah and when i when i have been on my phone the benefits are not great and i feel crap in the morning um but for you is is that a plausible thing to do if like so i i have tried to do it before and i really struggle to i'm not saying it like i think you if you psychologically get in the loop of this is impossible then it becomes impossible. i don't think it is impossible for me mm. genuinely is a hard behavior thing um i think i find it easier to log off when i'm you know, i live on my own but sometimes i'm with people that i'm like um then night with and then obviously it's so easier because you've kind of got another person there but um when they don't when no one when no one is around it's really easy to sort of fall fall into the social media and failing to log off um so i think it's doable but um like if someone tells me to if someone like it, it would be unfair of me to ask anyone to but if someone messaged me when i was going when i should go to bed and go like you should go to bed um I would do it more. It's that sometimes it's that prompting, you know. Sometimes my brain just gets kind of stuck. I mean, I've just actually I've just got a new phone and I've got an app on it, which uh, makes the screen go black and white at a time you set. So I've set it for eleven. And actually, the black and white works really well for What's me. What's the app called? I think it's just a feature on my phone. I think it's an and I think it's maybe on some version of Android, but I suspect there's probably an app that does it too. Uh, okay, I'm the hero you deserve. That's what um, I'm saying. I'm the hero. But... You, you guys won't see this, but Henry's just text lines in our like the pod group text thing saying lines go to bed. So <laughs> yeah. it is only 8 p.m. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Henry. We're kind of joking a lot here, but I, 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 and I'm doing okay myself. But I think there is something genuine here about the way in which a way to, you know, I'm a big believer in kind of autonomously helping each other in small groups being the way that society ultimately changes not individual action but that the, like society is built from the bottom bottom up i think it's good to look out for one another and i think maybe we should be looking out for each other more and when we notice each other engaging very late on twitter like incur like disengaging you know like when if we can look out for each other i think uh, and i don't mean necessarily to but you know when you know people and you can see people posting until late in the night and you think you are too and you can feel yourself being pulled into it. I think mutually aiding one another into disengaging or finding meaning in something else. I think that can be really powerful. And maybe that's maybe the only way to dismantle this terror system in which we now exist is with our own hands locally with those we care about. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. The music, as per usual, was Sweet of Vermouth, as it is apparently pronounced, uh, composed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoy this two-part special, then please do let us know. Uh, just tweet the Social Review or tweet myself. Uh, I would absolutely love to hear um, any thoughts you guys have. Uh, we barely scratched the surface on our relationship with technology. There's so much more uh, that we didn't talk about and I'm sure it'll be informing future discussions that we have on the podcast. So do subscribe if you aren't already. Otherwise, thanks for listening and you shall hear us again next week. Goodbye. Can I just end on one thing? Yeah. Yeah.